0: Morning, everyone. When I was in Mexico uh, during the short term mission trip, one thing I noticed our local missionary leader, Pastor John Lowe, I noticed what he did. What he did was to train uh, all of us, the four of us, as quickly as possible to be able to survive the first 10 minutes of every day. The first 10 minutes of every day. Was actually the walk that we took from the hotel to the church. Uh, this is the hotel. This is the church. Uh, it's not that bad a hotel, right? Uh, so we went for ten minutes uh, walk uh, from the church to the hotel. Although walking to the church requires some navigation and going through some some creepy underground route like this. It wasn't really difficult. But our task for the first 10-minute walk was more than just getting from point A to point B. We had to accomplish two things before entering the church. The two things are buying bread and buying juice. Because we would eat breakfast together at church and Pastor Lowe was very specific. Like which store's should we buy these things. He demonstrated to us where and how to buy these things in the first morning and we had to do it ourselves for the rest of the trip. So the second day, the next day, we split our team of four into two teams, the bread team and the juice team. Now, which team had the easy job? The bread team or the juice team? Which team do you think has the easy job? No, is the, definitely the bread team. They just went into the bakery store, picked the bread, and paid. The most that that you would say is "Hola" and then "Gracias." But that's all you need to say. So so Helena and and I think it's Brian Brian from from the Mandarin congregation picked the bread uh, uh the bread team like they picked the bread team smart choice. So Hyron and I ended up in the juice team. To buy juice is, is a totally different story. It wasn't a supermercado that you can pick your own. It's a store that you have, it, it's like right, right there. And this is me, this is Hyron so, so, so you have to order it like a Starbucks. So between Hiron and I, you know, being the pastor, I need to lead by example, right? So, no problema. Practice makes perfect. So I spent the whole night to practice one line, which is Yo quiero un litro de Wow! So the next morning, well, it's, it, this is like one liter of orange juice. So the next morning, we started our journey. Then we split up. Hyron and I went to the juice store. And I was like, God, give me this, the gift of tongue. Just kidding. So I, when, I, when I got to the juice store, the guy looked at me, waiting for my order. So I go, okay. un And then, you know, that's the nervous moment. Because I have no idea how he's going to, to respond to it. If he went, huh? And you know, you're a complete failure. But he was like, ah, see, si, see. Si. I was like, yes. You know, then I, at, at night I time with my wife and I told her that I could say, un, un literal, uh, without telling her what it means. And she was, her response was like, oh, that sounds Spanish with a Chinese accent. I have no idea how she, she can tell. But, but I did not tell her what it means. So, in fact, she was quite impressed. I mean, she must think that I was speaking, uh, talking about John 316 or something. But later, I had this ambition to surpass my mentor, Pastor So I decided to buy apple juice instead the next day. Guess what? Another success. Apple is manzana. So so we got to the church and had breakfast. Pastor Lowe said that they never, ever tried apple juice before. And it was really good. So I was so proud of myself that being a new generation in Mexico, I already surpassed my mentor. Because I bought them something that they had never tried. Hugo de Manzana. He was actually quite happy that I was able to, to try new things without his help. I guess that applies to every generation, that, that we all hope our next one will accomplish territories that we never have. Even as simple as buying orange juice in Spanish, I need to learn from someone. I was given a new language. Someone has learned it, lived it, and then passed on to me. And I was able to do something that I couldn't to begin with. If it was something that is more significant, more indispensable, more complex, then the process to pass on and to receive must be more lengthy, more demanding, and more intentional. Gospel and our entire spiritual heritage, which we have inherited from generations and generations of Christians before us, must be preserved faithfully and passed on unreservedly to the coming generations. One one way God has prescribed to His people in order to pass down spiritual treasures is to have various festivals. Festivals in the Old Testament, such as the Passover, the Tabernacles, and and the Pentecost, are are not merely times in every year just to celebrate. No. These festivals were commanded by God to be installed in every calendar year to retell and rehearse God's great work of salvation in history. Festivals in theological term are reenactments of historical and in fact historic divine acts. Every year on a prescribed day Israelites would sacrifice lambs, eat unleavened bread and bitter herb, and they would even camp outside of their home for a period of time festivals reenact people's experience of God's saving acts in the past so that every generation can maintain the faith and hope in God and God alone festivals are God chosen instrument to ensure God's saving acts are remembered generations after generations nowadays in the new testament, test, testament church passover pentecost and tabernacles are replaced by Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. These three festivals each commemorate Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. You can tell someone the core of the entire gospel by just explaining the meaning of these three festivals. However, that's the way we celebrate these festivals, or let's just say Christmas, does the way we celebrate Christmas preserve and reenact the core of our gospel? Do we celebrate Christmas just for fun? Or do we celebrate Christmas with a vision to reenact God's saving act and that the gospel will be preserved and passed on to future generations? Well, let's read a portion of Psalm 78, the second longest Psalm after 119, to see how serious God takes. In terms of our responsibility to pass on to future generations what God has graciously bestowed to us through previous generations. Uh, Ella is going to read to, to us uh, today uh, the first eight verses of Psalm 78. So, Ella, please. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable, I will teach you lessons from the past. Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. Thank you, Alec. After listening to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this wonderful psalm. This is a psalm uh, that has been passed down to us uh, for over 3,000 years. And and, and this is still talking to us and and showing us uh, how you want us to live. Uh, so, we ask that you will also, uh, your spirit will touch our hearts today with your words, uh, with your powerful words, so that we will remember and we will act accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 78 is a psalm that is recited during Passover. It's like our Silent Night or O, o Come All Ye Faithful, these kind of songs that we sing in Christmas time. This psalm, which exhorts to uh, the congregation to pass down their spiritual heritage to the future generations. It's also a festive psalm. So they they sing this psalm in a very specific time in a year. So you can see how clearly from this arrangement that God has designed festivals as an elaborate teaching ritual. Uh, This psalm is written by this guy called Asaph. I mean, this guy is like the fastest person in the entire Old Testament, right? who would call himself A-S-A-P-H. Right? A-S-A-P, Harry. Joking aside, Asaph was one of David's three musicians. Twelve psalms in the Bible collection are attributed to him. Most Asaph's psalms are about remembering Yahweh's great deeds. And Psalm 78 is no exception. The psalm begins with a prophetic call in which he says, all my people hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. This psalm is called a masculine, which means wise teaching. So in front of a wise teaching, the way you won't become a fool is to hear and listen. So what's the difference between hear and listen? I mean, sometimes we would say, you're hearing, but you're not listening. Perhaps the difference is the level of attention being paid. Like when you listen, you're really paying attention. So listen. However, these two Hebrew, these two words in Hebrew term are very vivid. The first one is called asan. A-Z-A-N. Which means, give me your ears. It's already a word that implies attentive listening. As if when you're listening to me, your ears are mine. The second word is nata, translated into listen in the NIV, nata, which means this or this. This is active nata, this is passive nata. You are being nata. The second word nata means stretch your ears. Who has God punished this way before? Now you know why you get punished. To stretch your years is to improve your years reception cap- capacity. So in this psalm, Asaph chose these two words, Asan and Nata, to urge us to take God's words seriously. Give me your years, stretch your years. They do not refer to knowledge retention or just knowledge retention. But more so on responding in action what the message demands. Why you have to treat these messages so seriously? Why you have to give, me, give a soft your years and stretch of your years is because these messages were once a hidden mystery that God has finally revealed to us. Verse two it says, "I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old." Asaph, the poet, is now acting like a prophet, uttering to his congregation what used to be hidden. Hidden things, in some translations, is translated as mysteries, which are basically the same thing. We're familiar with the word revelation. We know that God's words are his revelation. The last book of the the Bible is even titled Revelation. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, which is the theatrical, a theatrical term meaning unveiling. What was hidden in the backstage is now unveiled at the right moment of the plot. We, we need to give years and stretch ears because what we are going to hear was hidden mysteries that God has unveiled or revealed to us. However, this unveiling process is to be done in every single generation. Verse 3 and 4 address this. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation. See this? Although God has unveiled or revealed the hidden mystery, this revealed message can still be hidden to future generations if one generation fails to pass it on. Well, we can actually unreveal what God has revealed by not passing it on. Not in the sense that we can make it hidden again, but in the sense that we hold it back from future generations. I come across a very powerful video clip on Facebook a few days ago that can serve as an illustration of what ASAP is teaching us here. Let's take a look at this video. you cannot see it says global warming, Uh, the future is disappearing. Um, Even though this video is about global warming, the idea is the same. Whether it is about reducing air pollution, getting rid of plastic straws, or passing on God's revealed truth, it's all about being good steward of God's blessing for the sake of future generations. Being good steward of our time requires us to pay attention to what we are called to do and do it diligently. For example, we have been passed down on to us, the celebration of Christmas and and, and for Christ's incarnation. So as we celebrate, it's not merely just because it's a cultural tradition, but more so that it is a sacred obligation. So we may ask, what are we supposed to pass on to the next generation? What are we supposed to be good stewards for? Asaph would go on and give us the answer. He says, We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. He decreed statues for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. During the, the festival of Passover, Asaph called God's people to tell the next generation about first, God's praiseworthy deeds, His power, and His wonders, the wonders that He has done. In short, it's God's works. Second, we are called to tell the next generations about God's statutes and His law. In short, that's God's words. We are to be good stewards of our rich spiritual heritage in terms of what God has done and what God has said. Well, isn't it how we get to know virtually anybody? By what they do and what they say. But in passing down what God has done in history and in our lives, and what God has said, and how true His words has always been in our lives, we are showing to our future generations what kind of God He is. In order to understand God in a systematic way, theologians have helped us in breaking it down into God's greatness and God's goodness. God's greatness is associated with His power and wisdom. Typical greatness of God includes His omnipotence, which is His his almighty, omniscience, His all-knowing ability, and His omnipresence, as in He is not bounded by time and space. God's greatness ensures He can and He will achieve what He sets out to do. God will not and cannot fail. His sovereignty and His authority can never be challenged or frustrated. On the other hand, God's goodness includes His love, His mercy, His faithfulness, justice, righteousness, patience, and, and so on. He has the power to simply wipe out His enemies, including the rebellious human world. But he would choose to save them instead. If God is good, but not great, nor all-powerful, then God is only nice, but unreliable. If God is... I mean, you can talk to Him, but you cannot count on Him to save you. But if God is great and powerful, but not absolutely good, then this God is unpredictable and scary like Thanos with all six infinity stones. So for God to be God, He must be both absolutely powerful and absolutely good. For us who are called to be like God, we are only called to be like Him in His goodness, not in His greatness. Adam and Eve, on the other hand, attempted to become as knowledgeable as God and in doing so they have crossed the line and resulted in sin. That's why the fruit of the Spirit bears only characteristics of goodness. So, in reciting and reenacting God's works and God's words to future generations, we are passing on to them the knowledge and experience that we have with our powerful and good God. So, what would happen if we faithfully pass on to our next generations what we know and experience of the greatness and goodness of God? What we can expect to happen then? What's the purpose in doing all these? Asaph goes on to tell us in verse 6, he says, So the next generation would know them, them meaning God's works and God's words, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. You know, that's right there. The vision statement of every church in every Christian family. If we do what Asaph has been calling us to do, namely passing on our spiritual heritage to future generations, faithfully and correctly, then the effect should be rewarding. There are two aspects of this outcome. First, the next generation will know God's deeds and God's words. Second, the next generation will go on to tell their children. So, if we do our job right, then the next generation will know and will tell. The phrase knowing God in the Old Testament is a very theologically rich phrase. Unlike our contemporary meaning for the word know, that focuses primarily on gaining information, the Hebrew phrase entails a wide range of responses in relation to the information you receive. Information is never the end. Uh, the end result of knowing. Transformation is. So in case we don't really get the meaning of knowing, Asaph goes on to describe it. Knowing God's deeds and words means that they will put their trust in God. In verse 7 he says, Then they will put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. The next generation will put their trust in God. This is our greatest hope for our children and our children's children. Trusting God when put in action means we will not forget His deeds and we will keep His commands. Trusting God means not in a sense that I trust God to solve my problems, but in a sense that fulfillment and satisfaction in life can all be found in God and God's wills. If putting Into this formula here, it means that trusting God for life's fulfillment and satisfaction, we do not need to go outside His deeds and His commands. Putting trust in God means that abundant life, as promised by Jesus, can be found by doing God's work and obeying His words. But how can we nurture such trust in God? We might say, oh, that's the work of the Spirit. That's true, but somehow the way we nurture our next generations does have an effect in developing their trust in God. But so often, our focus can go off track. So often we heard people saying that they don't want to be Christians because there's so many things we as Christians cannot do. So often we find young people growing up and withdrawing from belief. Because they perceive our faith to be restrictive, or worse, condemning. A book by David Kinnaman of the Bible Group, titled You Lost Me, published in 2011, attempted to find out in the subtitle of the book, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. One of the driving factors behind this scenario is that young Christians had a general perception That church is a condemning institute. These are the five main categories. Uh, But the first one is condemning. To be fair, Christ has a mandate to address issues that happen around us and in our society and culture. Church needs to guide God's people to discern based on God's revealed truth in the Bible what is godly and what is evil. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that for any good discernment to take place, the focus cannot be on what is bad. Maybe we are so worried that they would fall into the temptation of the secular evilness, so we put so much emphasis on telling them what is bad for them and what they should not do. You know, we would say, oh, premarital sex is bad. The redefinition of sexuality is unbiblical. The marijuana thing is poisonous. Online dating is dangerous. And stop coming to church is not an option. But one day they will grow up and make their own decisions. And by that time, what's going to help them to make the right decision? It is, unlikely, it is likely not what you have defined for them as bad things. But what you have demonstrated to them, that reflects Goodness. If our approach to develop the next generation focuses on addressing the bad things, then it can easily become legalistic. If we want our next generation to have a strong desire for God, then we need to nurture them to appreciate and admire God's goodness. I used to work in a bank. They always teach you how to distinguish real money from counterfeit money. You don't study fake money. You never do. All you need to do is to know it so well what real money is like. Once you have a good grasp of what real money is like, you can tell what fake monies are. God gave us ten commandments, right? You know, just by calling it commandments already reflects an interpretation bias towards the nature of this section of the Bible. In fact, God never calls them commandments. In almost all English translations, as in NIV, it goes like this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then he goes on, the first word, you shall have no other gods before me. Words, in the original setting, can be understood as Troops. God was essentially saying I will give you the following ten truths well, that's very different than seeing them as commandments if we only read them as commandments then we would already per- we perceive them as rules that restrict our behavior it would be like speed, speed limit or I don't know, Amazon's refund policy but for ten, the ten words here, maybe we have missed the point if we read it as commandments. To begin with the ten words or ten truths, God did not say, you shall not this and you shall not that. God actually begins this whole section by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, Okay, if God wants to make the Ten Words as pure restrictions, then He would have said that He is a holy God or even an angry God. So make no mistakes. But God chose to begin this recording of His Ten Truths by introducing Himself as a God that has liberated His people. God is a good God that provides freedom and peace to his people. God is not like Pharaoh who suppressed and enslaved them. If the ten words are designed as pure restrictions, then God's introduction here is a little contradictory. God intends his people to know from the ten words that God is good, not God is restrictive. And then the ten truths, Almost all translations begin these ten paragraphs in you shall not, except four and five. Well, you shall not. That's pretty clear that these are restrictions, right? Well, I'm not saying that they are not restrictions. I'm actually saying that we should not just understand them as pure restrictions. I have to be really careful here. The word translated as shall not can also mean need not. If you see them as commandments, then you would naturally pick shall not as its meaning. But if you see them as ten truths, then maybe the words need not can give us another illuminating perspective. Shall not focuses on behavior shaping, while need not focuses on transforming one's internal desire. Every early rabbi in Israel knew that the ten words are designed to liberate them, not restrict them. They would interpret them as this. If you have God as your one true good God, then you no longer need to find another God. Or you no longer need to kill somebody else, somebody. Or you no longer need to steal from anyone, or to commit adultery, or to covet your neighbor's properties. It's not just that you're not allowed to do these things. The truth is that you no longer need to do those to find fulfillment and satisfaction in your lives. It's like I don't steal things, not just because I'm not allowed to, but more so because I don't need to. So how do we nurture this need-not mentality? It goes back to the beginning of these ten truths. It's the introduction of God, that God is, is a good God who saved them. The foundation of such ten truths is God's goodness. Once you are nurtured with God's goodness in you, then the Ten Commandments would be a gift to free you, not a curse to restrict you or condemn you. Paul says similar things in his letter to the, to the Philippians. He said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul is essentially saying that he does not need to covet others' properties or steal from others or to pursue fulfillment outside of God's deeds and God's words. He doesn't need that because he knows the goodness of Christ. He has been nurtured to appreciate and admire the Lord's Goodness. It's not just that he is not allowed to do bad things, but that he no longer needs to do those things to find fulfillment because he has known the goodness of Christ. That's what we have to lift out, brothers and sisters, so that the next generation can be nurtured to admire and appreciate God's goodness. This will be the best spiritual heritage that we can ever give to anyone. To appreciate God's goodness, we need to go no further than looking at the nativity scene. You ever ask God why God in Jesus became a baby? It's because so that He can die. He took on human form because His mission is to die for us. He became one of us so that He can die for all of us. If Jesus came to us as pure God then he cannot die because God cannot die. If, if he can die then, as God then he is not God at all. Death is a human thing. To die is to denote our creatureliness. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God took on human form born in a manger grew up just like you and me and died a horrible death. In our stead. This is God's goodness right there in the heart of Christmas. Nurture such goodness within yourself and for our younger ones, and you will find that God's goodness is so vast, even suffering the loss of all things will still be worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your greatness is incomparable. Your goodness is boundless. It is such a glorious privilege that we can be called your children. And in this Christmas season, we once again reflect on how far you were willing to go in order not to condemn us, but to save us. As we continue to reflect on Jesus being born in the manger, taking on human form, and dying in our place, we ask that your Spirit would protect us from ever forgetting your marvelous work and your liberating works. May your grace and love that we all have experienced continue to be passed on generations after generations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.